0: Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'm talking to the author of World War II and American Racial Politics, Public Opinion, The Presidency, and Civil Rights Advocacy. The book is uh, written by Stephen White, who I'm talking to today, and it's published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, Stephen, you are on the phone today. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. Thank you for sharing the, the book. Um, thanks for the, the chance to read it. And, and uh, I've been looking forward to talking about it uh, as, as we want to do on the podcast. Um, we'd love to hear a little bit more about who you are. So would you share just just a little bit before we get into the, the meat of your very interesting book? So maybe you could share, who are you?
1: Sure. So I am an assistant professor of political science at Syracuse University and I generally study issues related to race and American political development.
0: Yeah, the, the book, um, which uh, you know, in some ways I think um, even the casual observer thinks they know a lot about, probes this topic uh, that is World War II, uh, race, and, and civil rights in, in such an interesting way. Um, I wanted to start our conversation uh, by talking a little bit about the time period that you study. Um, while, while you're obviously focused on World War II, your book isn't isn't just about the years we typically associate with the war. I wonder if you could maybe situa- situate us in time a little bit. Uh, where do you start this time period and, and when do you wrap that up?
1: Sure. So I think the book really starts um, kind of in the late 1930s, I would say. So you're kind of in the midst of the I guess, the end of the, some of the later New Deal policy programs. This is a very sort of economically liberal, interventionist, uh, welfare-building era. Uh, but you start to see the war creep up, especially uh, in Europe. And so a lot of people, I think particularly more quantitative scholars, who have to have sort of very clear definitions for data analysis, will often start World War II in the U.S. with Pearl Harbor and then end very clearly with the dropping uh, of atomic bombs in Japan. And there's a lot of merit to that, that clearly is the core of the actual sort of fighting uh, for the United States. But I think you can see a lot of evidence that the war is kind of creeping up. You have things like Lend-Lease and so on. And then even after the war ends, um, a lot of other scholars have pointed out that it isn't really an immediate transition into pure peacetime. There's a sense of maintaining the peace that involves the U.S. being military presence around the world. And so I interpret World War II as being certainly at its core, this four to five year period in the early 1940s, but kind of look in the lead up in the aftermath uh, as well.
0: Now, this is a topic um, that has a, a, a long and distinguished scholarly history, uh, some of which you, you challenge in the book. Um, before we get to, to your argument, I wonder if you could sort of set the table a little bit, um, the, the conventional argument or arguments among scholars uh, that really are at the center of your investigation.
1: Sure. So I guess I am really broadly interested in the question of what war does for the incorporation of marginalized groups uh, in democratic societies broadly, but in the United States particularly. And I think there is sort of a common notion, I refer to it in the book as the war liberalization hypothesis, that wars can be quite good uh, for civil rights, and that World War II in particular was quite good for civil rights. And a lot of it comes down to this notion that There's something about the ideological context of World War II. Fighting Nazi Germany, which is perhaps the most racist enemy one could imagine, gives civil rights advocates a lot of tools to work with rhetorically on the home front and connecting what's happening abroad to their fight uh, at home. And I think this is sort of a a really compelling argument in a lot of ways, uh, but I really wanted to complicate that and particularly complicate it With respect to the white mass public, I think there is an idea that ordinary white Americans might have seen what Hitler was doing and had a rethinking of their own attitudes towards race in the United States. And while I think there is some limited evidence of declines in some of the more extreme forms of racial prejudice, one of my arguments is that it was much harder to change attitudes on policy, on issues like intervening against lynching, on issues of segregation, and so on. The war maybe wasn't enough to force a lot of movement on these concrete policy items.
0: Now, your approach um, is is different than uh, many others, in part because of your reliance not just on historical data, but on on quantitative measures of things that that scholars in the past have speculated about, but but haven't um, measured in the same kind of way. Uh, where did you find these variables? Uh, who was collecting them at the time period? and then maybe talk a little bit about what some of their limitations are.
1: So when I got into this project in graduate school, uh, Eric Schickler and Adam Berensky in particular were engaged in a large project to try to go through and make sense of these really early public opinion polls, which start in the mid-1930s, uh, and so nice for people studying the New Deal in World War II, but have a lot of real limits. And In particular, the major limit is that they didn't use kind of modern uh, strategies for survey design. And in particular, they used what people called quota sampling, where they would try to go out and not get a random sample so much that try to select uh, certain things they were looking for. So a certain number of men and women, a certain number of people uh, in this area or that area. But within those broad guidelines, there was a lot of discretion and um, particular, a lot of discretion with regard to class. And so it seems like there might have been sort of an upper class bias in some of these. Uh, particularly the 1930s polls, you see a lot of bias towards male respondents and not a lot of women being interviewed. That gets fixed into the 1940s. But there are some real limitations there. And so using uh, some of the tools offered by people like Adam Brinsky and Eric Schickler, particularly the use of survey weights based on census data from the 1940 census, you can try to correct for that as much as possible, but these are still not quite what we would look for in a 2019 poll. And so as someone coming at this from a more APD perspective, I try to use what I can, but at the same time, I try to offer some nuance and admit uncertainty uh, where possible.
0: Yeah, and much of the book is is divided between looking at um, public opinion and and also at uh, uh, elite reactions uh, to the war and also elite reactions to public opinion advocacy uh, maybe we can start with um, the, uh, the public opinion piece of this. And, and you've already suggested um, kind of where you were investigating and, and kind of the, the open question uh, was, was whether um, uh, the war and, and its particular dynamics uh, led to an increase in support for various aspects of the, the civil rights agenda. And one of the areas you look at is um, uh, federal intervention in state lynching cases. Uh, maybe you could talk about why that why that specific area is is of interest. And then what you found. Um is is this um, uh, uh, were there the changes that that people may have expected, or did you find something different? And and maybe on top of that, uh, were there any differences for those who served and those who did not serve in war?
1: So lynching was a really major part of the civil rights agenda in the 1930s, especially. Uh, But really going back to the 19-teens, Megan Francis talks about this in her book about the NAACP. Um, But one of the real limitations uh, of this was that Congress is always sort of a roadblock. And so it's one of the great kind of what-ifs that this never actually passes uh, a Senate filibuster. And so I took lynching as a sort of major uh, question because it's something people are really focused on. And it happens to be one issue more than any other that survey researchers actually asked about around a dozen times between 1937 and 1950. Although, interestingly, there's a gap during the war itself when I think some of these sensitive questions were not asked. Um, and what I find is, sort of broadly speaking, is that there's not a lot of evidence for the argument that World War II led to an increase in support for federal intervention in state lynching cases. The data are a little bit ambiguous. There are a lot of issues, particularly with some slight changes in question wording and some not so slight changes along the way as well. And so, I don't want to make I don't want to make too definitive of a claim. And so, what I try to say in the book is that it's possible there was just kind of a no effect that attitudes towards lynching were kind of unchanged before and after the war, which I think would be kind of a striking uh, null result if true. If pressed, if trying to look at the patterns in the graphs you might even say there was a slight uh, decrease in support for federal intervention in state lynching cases uh, in both the North and the South. I look also in another chapter at attitudes among white veterans, and lynching, though, actually is one of the issues where you see some evidence that people who served in the war, whites who served in the war particularly, uh, were more willing to support federal intervention in state lynching cases, although interestingly, only in the North. Uh, Southern white veterans were not. But outside of the South, white veterans, all else equal, were more likely to support this. Uh, And why that is, is an interesting question, and I'm not sure there's a definitive answer, but I found it to be kind of a striking uh, finding It's a bit in contrast to some of the aggregate trends.
0: Yeah, I guess, you know, you you don't have a way to sort of answer this uh, specifically, but but what do you imagine some of these mechanisms are? Uh, The war is happening at a grand scale, but people are interacting with it in, in different ways, including veterans who are uh, in in sometimes uh, highly segregated uh, divisions. What do you imagine happening uh, as a result of, of um, uh, fighting in the war? Is, is this mainly uh, an, an issue of uh, greater uh, contact with um, uh, those of a different race? Or is there something else happening related to the specific issues uh, that, that these polls are investigating?
1: I think one of the great kind of counterfactuals here is this issue of segregation in the military itself. And so there's a lot of work on the contact hypothesis, the idea that coming into contact with people from other groups might decrease your prejudice towards them, that the military has been an especially favorable environment for that. But World War II was the last war uh, fought fully with a segregated uh, force. And so a lot of the aspects of that hypothesis that are particularly important just weren't really in place during World War II. Nonetheless, you do find some occasional differences between veterans and non-veterans, including this question about lynching. And I suspect that for some veterans of the war, it didn't push them on questions of segregation and some of these harder questions, but I think on some of the extremes. And so lynching being this extreme case of mob violence and the state failing to protect you. Um, And particularly after World War II, there were prominent incidents of black veterans being beaten and lynched as they returned home. And so that might've produced a limited uh, shift in attitudes on that issue in particular. Um, I think broadly speaking, this connects a little bit to the other parts of the book. You know, Harry Truman served in the first world war and Truman was very much someone who was of his era of his place in, in rural Missouri when it came to a lot of issues regarding race and civil rights, when it came to violence against black veterans, in particular uh, but black Americans generally uh, to some extent, that was where he sort of drew the line, and I suspect that for some white veterans, that might have been the case for them as well.
0: Now, in the title of the book, you include civil rights advocacy, not just civil rights issues, and uh, which suggests that there there are groups out there that were uh, not passive uh, participants in this, but were were actively uh, lobbying and and uh, advocating for for change. Uh, what are the groups? Who are the groups first that are most uh, important uh, to your study? And what were they doing during this time period? Um, as you suggest, there's this great change from Roosevelt to Truman uh, in, in the uh, sort of presidential agenda on civil rights. But before we even get to that, uh, what are the groups doing uh, during this time period? Are they, are they uh, pursuing a, a common strategy or is it uh, more complicated than that?
1: So I focus in particular on uh, the NAACP, often uh, sort of symbolized by its leader at the time, Walter White, and uh, A. Philip Randolph, who was a, a prominent black labor uh, leader. And Randolph and White and the NAACP didn't always see eye to eye. Uh, Walter White was very much of the mind that the best way to achieve victories on civil rights policy items was to lobby political elites kind of behind the scenes. And so he would often try to write to the White House, to Congress, et cetera, and try to work uh, through these back channels. A. Philip Randolph, perhaps reflecting more of his labor organizing background, was a bit more skeptical of that and was a bit more inclined towards the use of more sort of protest oriented activities. But despite some of these differences, uh, Randolph, White and others do work together to push this sort of wartime civil rights agenda. Uh, that includes things like lynching, uh, issues like the poll tax, but also certain new issues that kind of come onto the agenda as the war comes about. Uh, Two in particular, one being the fight against discrimination uh, in jobs in the defense industry particularly, and the second being integration of the armed forces. And these two issues really become uh, quite central for advocates as the war comes about.
0: Now, you had mentioned before Truman's... um... I don't know if it would be described as a change of heart, but uh, at least in his um, actions, uh, a departure from uh, the approach uh, that Roosevelt had taken prior to. Um, and this gets to the part of the book that's that's very much focused on what's going on in Washington at the time. Uh, what changes in the political environment that that results in these very different approaches to civil rights from the Roosevelt administration to the to the Truman administration? What, what's going on? And, and uh, how does that explain? how each president uh, approached these issues.
1: So I think in the 1930s, especially, Roosevelt was sort of famous for downplaying issues of civil rights as part of an effort to maintain this cross-regional alliance that included the White South uh, to kind of maintain support for his economic policies in the New Deal. Uh, Right before, kind of in the lead-up to the war itself, there's a lot of pressure by Randolph White and others for Roosevelt to issue an executive order uh, prohibiting discrimination in the defense industry, something that Roosevelt initially is you know, not particularly inclined to do. But ultimately, Randolph threatens this march protest, this kind of march on Washington uh, that would have really, I think, brought a lot of disruption uh, to the White House. And eventually, FDR kind of relents and signs his executive order. But interestingly, despite a lot of pressure also happening in the FDR White House to integrate the armed forces, this is an issue where FDR always kind of avoids doing something. He he always uh, sort of defers to the preferences of the War Department, which is not to have any experiments during the war. That kind of language becomes very, very common. And so when FDR dies, the military is still segregated and the war ends with that. With Truman, you have, of course, the end of the war, at least sort of the formal end of the war, and then uh, towards the end of his first term, a lot of pressure to integrate the armed forces. And why that is, is a complicated thing. I think certainly you can make a credible uh, case, as, as many have. A lot of it was electoral calculation. I think perhaps overly so, many people took the White South for granted. But more than that, there was a sense that Black voters who were moving out of the South and becoming... Uh, sort of important players in these really pivotal swing swing stakes had to be competed for because they might vote Republican, and so what could you offer them? I think there's still this question of why the civil rights advances of this era were so military focused, and I think the war says a lot about why that is. I think there are aspects of Truman's own sort of approach to politics uh, that say a lot about that uh, as well. But yeah, I mean, overall, it's a fairly it's a complicated story, and I think to some extent uh, inherently. One without totally clear answers, although I try to offer some of my my best attempts uh, in the book.
0: Yeah. Now, this is obviously studying a, a period of time uh, for American political history. Um, but but the the sort of the one of the larger questions is is what does this have to do with with the situation that we're facing today? Uh, have you thought at all about the impact of our most recent wars? Uh, these wars that are uh, long in duration, but but not not as um, seemingly as salient as as World War II was in the lives of Americans at that time period, and and how um, the civil rights issues of today are playing out in respect to um, sort of the the thesis about war and and the development of the state. Um, wh- what about today? What what does your book uh, say about the the situation, the issues of today?
1: It's something I've thought about
0: a lot over the
1: years and have kind of gone uh, back and forth on. And so certainly you see some really uh, compelling examples of people using war and military service to fight for sort of better inclusion uh, at home. You saw the famous speech at the 2016 uh, DNC where these these parents talked about their son who had served and used that to make the case uh, really for better inclusion of muslim americans in sort of who counts uh, as being fully uh, american i think ultimately the way i see it though is that there's probably a fundamental difference between what you might call a total war like world war ii and what you might call these more at least relatively speaking uh limited wars uh like iraq and afghanistan which is not to say that these are short wars obviously afghanistan is, is not a short war but there are wars that can be more easily ignored by most people on the home front. World War II had a draft. It had rations. It was everywhere. And the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, while certainly very prominent, didn't have that. And so I don't fully know what the implications of those wars are for the inclusion of marginalized groups. Um, I'm trying to do a paper now that kind of looks into that in a, a sort of more empirically oriented way. But My initial suspicion, my my sort of hunch here, is that in an era when total war has declined, which is, of course, a very good thing, one irony of that might be that it's harder to use war uh, to fight for rights
0: uh, at home. The book, uh, the really interesting book, World War II and American Racial Politics, Public Opinion, The Presidency and Civil Rights Advocacy, uh, is published this year by Cambridge University Press, and the author you've been hearing from, is Stephen White. Stephen, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it.